You're listening to episode 44 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. He's Alex, I'm Tara, and the Cardinals have found themselves an ace. But what should they do with their old one? Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the show. This is the edition where we maybe start looking at magic numbers and counting down to the end of the regular season. I don't know. It feels like maybe it's still a little too early to do that. But nonetheless, Tara and Alex with you as the Cardinals currently sit four games up on the Chicago Cubs who are playing the easy part of their schedule while the Cardinals, well, they start a pretty complicated stretch of games with a series in Colorado right now they're down two runs to one in the bottom of the fourth with Michael Waka pitching the first game of this series but Alex with the games that are yet to come with the part of the schedule that both the Cubs and the Cardinals are in we keep coming back to do we believe this yet and I don't know if I have a good answer for that I have an answer I think that a rational person would give, and I have my answer, which is uh, <laughs> uh, anxious Cardinals fans' answer. Uh, re- remember in the offseason when we talked about Bryce Harper? Remember when all, all we used to talk about was Bryce Harper? Yeah, <laughs> uh, every show. <laughs> yeah. um, and I said, even when the tea leaves were clearly saying otherwise, I said, I don't think he's, I think he's going to end up a Cub until I find out for sure otherwise. Uh, I was obviously very wrong. But that's how I feel right now. I'm not banking on the Cardinals finishing ahead of the Cubs until it absolutely happens. And I guess the difference with the Harper thing is anyone who was smart could have maybe seen that he clearly wasn't headed to the Cubs. I mean, notable people were reporting that the Cubs had zero interest. And yet, I still... I say they're in my head, say whatever you want. I was still like convinced he was going to end up there. This one's based on a little more reality because those seven games are pretty hard to ignore. They are. And I'll tell you what, I was feeling much better about it just in general based on the way the Cardinals have played lately, based on the way their schedule had laid out, based on what I felt like the rotation was capable of at this point, until I started watching the Cubs broadcast of the Cubs-Padres game last night and all of a sudden was hearing all of these ways that the Cubs are very much not out of it and how they have an easier schedule than the Cardinals and reiterating those seven games, all these things that I knew, but you know, hearing it, from that perspective was this very stark reminder that compared to the way that, you know, the the Cardinals home announcers talk about the Cardinals chances of winning the division, the Cubs and their fans and their, well, maybe not so much their fans, but they're the, the people who are around this team know that they still very much have every opportunity to, uh, to reclaim that division title. So all of a sudden the reality set in for me, I think listening to that conversation and, any sort of comfort level that had been established by the last month to six weeks of baseball was very quickly erased. And I realized, no, this is this is what happens when you're in a tight race in September. You don't ever get to take a breath until the very end. Yeah. Uh, and th- that that reminds me of something I was thinking about earlier. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spring a question on you. Okay. As we all know, the Cardinals and Cubs finished out the season with a three-game series in Bush Stadium. And again, I've already announced that I'm not banking on anything. I'm still 
scared to death of the Cubs. Um, so this is just hypothetically speaking, Tara, would you rather go into that series up four games? So meaning it's all over. There's nothing really to worry about. They can start thinking about their rotation for the NLDS and all that stuff. And, you know, those three games are not much more than a formality. Or up three games, meaning they only have to win one game and then they can celebrate in front of their fans, in front of the Cubs at Bush Stadium. But but, but <laughs> they could also lose all three games. Uh, Which, option A or option B? Which are you taking? The anxiety level would definitely be better with option A. But I think there's something really exciting about the celebration in that context at home against the Cubs, particularly because the Cardinals have had to watch the Cubs celebrate um, even at Bush Stadium a couple of times as of late. So oh, that would be real, nice. Real, real quick, I, I want to ask a quick question on that. And I want to know sure. if my memory serves. Am I correct in saying not only did we have to watch them celebrate, but the day before that, they actually eliminated us from the playoffs? Yeah. Isn't that, yeah, how, that was, how that played I out? Think like they so. first eliminated us and then they clinched and celebrated? I, I that- try to like block that memory from my mind but no I I think you're right I think that it was like a a back-to-back rubbing salt in the wound so yeah in that case I definitely would like to be able to eliminate the Cubs while playing them that would be great Um, but also to clinch the division in that final series would be great the other thing that not from like a sort of emotional fan perspective but just from looking at the way that series could shape up I I don't think that it's typically very beneficial to I, I don't know I guess this is just me making assumptions I have I don't have actual data to back this up but it feels like you know a team that clinches so early that that last week of the season doesn't really matter there's maybe a little bit of a a letdown in the first round of the postseason I think that's in part a lot of times why wildcard teams end up winning in those first the first round or the, or the second round of the postseason whatever you want to call the not wildcard game game um their series rather but there's something to that momentum there's something to building the excitement and and running with it after clinching and after that celebration that's different than the clinch of the the division or, or the postseason spot whatever it is happening so early that then like you said, those games are basically irrelevant and you just have to play them out. But all of that to say, if they could win that first game <laughs> to clinch the division uh, and then they could set up their pitching for how they want it in the first round of the postseason, that would be ideal. Say, um, and, and, and again, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not assuming anything here, uh, but say they win that first game so they clinch and if they win one of the next two games, there's a good chance they will knock the Cubs out of it entirely. Mm. You still rest, guys, right? Or is that? I, I, I mean, I think about like the uh, the Phillies doing that against the Braves to kind of help <laughs> us get in, and then uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> we knock out the Phillies. I mean, so go backing up to what you said about kind of like the the rest thing and whether or not Malay sets in, and you know, um, you can get uh you know upset in the nlds or whatever i i'm guessing that there's plenty of 
examples to back up either, right? Like, right. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think about the Cardinals um, and Tigers. I think about that 2006 yeah. World Series when we had to grind it out with the Mets and the Tigers plowed through, uh, was that the A's? Who, who'd they beat? Uh, Maglio Dornia. Uh, Gosh, yeah. I don't even remember. Maglio hit that walk-off home run to win yeah. it. Uh, who was that? I, I was, was so focused on the stress yeah. of the Cardinals in that right, right. postseason. I, recall, I have no idea what happened on the other side. <laughs> yeah, if I recall, though, the Tigers had a nice break yeah. before we got there, and then it looked like they weren't even ready to play baseball. But right. you know, we can also think about the last three World Series winners who all, I, I can't, rattled off the top of my head, but they were all very, very good teams yeah. winning oh, yeah. an abundance of 100 games. So you have to assume that they all clinched um, well before that la- final uh, day of the season. So. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like, hmm. As long as they win, as long as they clinch the division, I'll be happy with it either way. <laughs> me too, me too. I, I think I would take option A just because I, I don't even want to have to worry about that series. But it's it's very hard to imagine a scenario where we go into that series up four. Right? I mean, we, we're going to have to really hold serve and then play well against them in Chicago. Um, and, and speaking of holding serve, so we have the Rockies right now and then who the Brewers and the Nats. Mm. So nine games, three game series each. I'm looking at five and four in these nine games and I'll be happy. Yeah. I, you know, I think I was talking the other night about this, that, you know, if they go three games over 500, um, they're, they're pretty much set. Like there, th- there's not a good mathematical equation that makes a lot of sense for the Cubs to be able to catch them at that point uh, in the games outside of the seven games left with the Cubs, right? You were talking mm-hmm. about those three that you mentioned, the Diamondbacks as well in that mix, which yeah. uh, they're kind of scary right now. So that series is suddenly more significant than we thought it was going to be uh, even just a few weeks ago. But yeah, I mean, if they go, if they go a, a take above 500 in those four series and then uh, play well at Wrigley. I, I feel I feel pretty good about that because of the inconsistency of the Cubs, even with the easier schedule that they're they're dealing with right now. We've seen them lose to some pretty bad teams, and we've seen them lose at home or on the road. So there's certainly no guarantees, but there are plenty of reasons to feel good about where the Cardinals are in controlling their own destiny at this point. Like you said, if they go five and four in that nine game stretch. You just start you start doing the math, right? And ticking away games off the schedule. The calendar's in their favor right now. And that's a good position to be in and an unfamiliar one for a lot of us who haven't seen this team leading the division in September in what feels like forever. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I first thing I did is I woke up this morning, I just looked at my phone to see if the Cubs, see what happened with the Cubs and Padres. Because, you know, I as much as I enjoy scoreboard watching, I'm not going to be scoreboard watching until 1.30 in the morning <laughs> for, a, <laughs> for a West Coast game or whatever what time that game got over. Um, but yeah, it sure would be nice if the Padres and, and who else? They have like the Reds and Pirates, I feel like. Yeah, it's all the, once they finish with this series with the Padres, they're in the NL Central the rest of the season. Right. Well, hopefully we can count on the Reds and Pirates um, helping us out a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it's almost funny how nervous we're sounding right now about this team, a, a team that has um, pretty much proven itself the last month, you know, pretty much winning every series. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I thought last week they lost those two ugly games to the Giants and then that game to Pittsburgh and then bounced right back to win 
um, the next game. And in the Pittsburgh uh, series, win, win the next two games to take the series. And, you know, that was just such a nice, nice thing to see because those losses reminded me a lot of like 2016, 2017 losses mm-hmm. of, of giving the other team an extra out. Uh, with those, I, you know, I, I almost feel greedy even whining about it now because we won both series and, you know, this is baseball. You can't win every game. But gosh, those de Young airs were so frustrating. Yeah, and, and they're frustrating because, to your point, we haven't seen them. Not not only f- not from Paul DeYoung, but not from this team. We haven't seen right. that kind of just bizarre errors <laughs> from this team all yeah. season. So all of a sudden when we see it, we're like, whoa, 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 whoa what's <laughs> happening here? <laughs> no, totally. And I think that's why it's so much more forgivable. Like, I don't know if forgivable is the right word. That sounds like these guys like are in my debt or something. But, you know, that, <laughs> but that's why it was so much easier to get over because um, exactly what you said. We haven't seen that as much this year. In fact, did you happen to read Craig Edwards' article at Fangrass this morning? On the I have not seen it yet. Okay. I've heard several people have talked about it, but I have not read it yet. Well, one of the main points is that the Cardinals have been excellent this season at making plays that they're supposed to make. And yep. anecdotally, that feels very much on point. So it's nice to see the stats back that up as well. Because that is what, they, that is what they've been like all season in the field is that they're going to make the, the routine plays, which was not a st- necessarily a staple of the team, you know, the last several years. Yeah, it's been <laughs> problematic to say the least. Derek Gould, I believe it was, had a piece out today about the defense as well that was talking about the, sounds strange to say it this way, but the, the acceptance of the shift as a part of their philosophy, not because they never were shifting before, but mm-hmm. he really detailed kind of the work that's gone into utilizing the data that they have available to them and then putting it in the hands of their players, literally in the form of those defensive alignment cards that everyone thinks are cell phones in their back pockets. Yeah. They're not, they're, they're defensive alignment cards. But then talking about the the conversation and the process that goes into, hey, here's what the, what the numbers tell us. Here's where situationally you should align yourself, but also have good baseball instincts and don't rely entirely on the numbers on a card. And there were, as you said, anecdotal um, examples of guys who said, yeah, the, the card told me to be here and I actually moved over three steps because of what I was seeing and the ball came right to me or whatever the case may be. So it's an in, been an interesting process to see that become such a strength of this team and then to hear about it both in what the, the numbers say about the success of those uh, attempts and then what the process has been like from the inside is is a really interesting facet of this season that you know, we kind of we kind of collectively gave Mike Schultz a hard time about the, but what about the defense? What about the base running in his, um, I don't know, yeah. right now rant seems a little strong, but in his his monologue from uh, what, back yeah. before the All-Star break, is that when it was? I can't wonder what, he deserved it though. I, I, I'll still stand by that. He deserved it. Which is fair. Yeah. But, the, but the point is, he was right. I mean, the defense and the base running have been dramatically improved. And I think it's become... It's become such an underlying conversation because it's not a problem yeah. that that's actually a huge testament to the work that's been done. Yeah, he was right, but he was also wrong in that because I feel like we were talking about it. We were mentioning it, but yeah, uh, 
it does seem like so trivial now. Like that seemed like such a big deal at the time because how the Cardinals were playing. Um, <laughs> but a, a couple things to what you said. I feel like now is the best time of any for a player to actually get away with a cell phone on the field. Uh, because <laughs> so much publicity has been given to the card that I feel like everyone now knows what these are. So you probably could bust out a phone and, and people would just think it was that card. Well, I don't know. Phones, I, I think people might notice. I don't know. Um, I don't know. Else, <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, a couple of days ago at Baseball Prospectus, friend of the podcast, Matt Trueblood, had, a, had an article about the Cardinals. It was kind of a combination of the – a little bit of what Craig Edwards wrote about today and also that Derek Gould column that you were just talking about and that he talked about the Cardinals are shifting a lot more um, mm-hmm. and that has certainly improved their defense. But what has also improved their defense is just that they have very good defensive players, uh, particularly yeah. in the infield with the addition of Goldschmidt at first base, which you know has made a difference, but also just the Young and Wong playing excellent up the middle. Yeah, they've been a tremendous duo. And then, I mean, really up the middle, if you think about what Yadier Molina has done and in his limited appearances, Matt Wieters has been more than capable defensively compared to some of the backups we've seen in the past, who've been a bit of a step backwards. And then, you know, the abilities of Paul DeYoung and Colton Wong and most of the year, Harrison Bader, at least defensively, that's a a pretty strong up the middle sequence of defensive players that have made a, a big difference. I do think, Paul Goldschmidt at first base has been a significant boost, even though it doesn't necessarily show up in ways that there's a, you know, a a number factor for. It's almost like there aren't mistakes, so you don't actually have numbers for what isn't there, (laughs) if that makes sense. And that's why it's so much better. But it's been fun to watch the defense of this team do what they're doing, especially as you know, the pitching staff of this team has kind of figured itself out as of late. I know we want to talk a lot more about particularly Adam Wainwright and Jack Flaherty tonight, but the pitching staff as a whole, I I feel like has to have a lot more confidence in going out and getting outs because of the defense behind them. Yeah, it certainly, certainly helps. I mean, it kind of feels like an old school, uh, Cardinals pitching staff with Dave Duncan, you know, uh, I, I don't even know how true this is anymore. I guess I'm th- I'm like projecting kind of D- Dakota Hudson's profile on the entire staff when that's obviously not entirely true. But you know, they I, they I bet I wouldn't be surprised if they do have more. Um, they pitch a contact more than a lot of other staffs, and you know, that certainly works a lot better when you have the good defense behind you. Yeah, it it also helps when you have someone like Jack Flaherty that doesn't need defense. <laughs> He can just strike guys out all on his own. Um, He's phenomenal. And we're seeing it now more than ever. It seems like he just gets better and better and better as the season goes on, particularly in the second half. I I was working on a a video today that included a, a bunch of information about Jack Flaherty. So I was just looking at his numbers and man, his second half is unbelievable not just the 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 sub one era but the strikeout numbers that he's racking up um the the near no hitters that he keeps attempting in seemingly every start the the shutouts it just 
it's an incredible turnaround from what we saw from him early on this season that wasn't terrible. It just wasn't really anything to write home about. And now it's almost like must watch television. Yeah, no, no, you, you, you nailed it. Uh, I, I feel like earlier in the season, he was giving up a lot of home runs and was laboring to get through five. And since uh, I, I guess it all started with that start against the Giants, that game we lost, by the way, um, yeah. right before the All-Star break. And, and since then, he's basically been like, <laughs> do you remember Zach Britton in 2016 for the Orioles that yeah. uh, as a closer? He was just like unhittable. Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically been Flaherty as a starter. Like, like he has like Zach Britton 2016 numbers as a starter over his last <laughs> 80 innings. It's insane. Uh, I, I don't even know what to say. I guess another comparison, what it kind of reminds me of, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this, would be kind of Jake Arrieta's second half of his uh, 2015 season. Mm. Um, and, and he basically carried that over into, if I recall, his the first half of his 2016 was almost on par with that. Uh, like if you take kind of those two halves, he had an incredible, incredible year. Uh, so it almost reminds me of that, even though they're, they're different pitchers. But yeah, he's been great. And it's just nice to kind of have that, anchor uh, of like having that confidence of thinking that okay we have a three game series coming up Flaherty's pitching one of the games so if we can just win one of those other two games and we know we're probably going to win the series you know what I mean like that's such a good feeling it's been a while since I mean to some degree Miles Michaelis was that guy last year you at least felt like you were going to have every chance to win that game but even with as good as Miles Michaelis was last year I don't know that I felt like he was as dominant as Jack Flaherty has been. I mean, his numbers were great for a large part of the season, but not because necessarily he was racking up the strikeouts or because he had just this absolutely nasty stuff on the slider or whatever it is. You know, he was able to utilize the ground balls a lot. He was able to be that that effective kind of pinpoint location guy. Um, but even that doesn't quite have the dominance of what Jack Flaherty has done lately. And it's exciting to see that. It's refreshing to have that kind of expectation of a player and not feel like it's too high of an expectation. Um, At this point, it it almost feels like the expectation every time Jack Flaherty takes the mound is that this is the night he's going to throw a no-hitter, which, okay, maybe that's an unfair expectation, but not really based on the way he's thrown the ball as of late. So he's becoming the ace that this team didn't have for most of the year. And to do that now kind of carry them through the second half run, even though they haven't won every one of those Jack Flaherty starts, you feel like there's, there's gotta be a correlation between the way that he's pitching, the way he was able to step up in the second half and kind of take some of the pressure off of the bullpen, at least in his starts and the way that they've been able to continue this run as opposed to sort of that stop and start thing they did most of the rest of the year. Absolutely. We've been talking a lot about, you know, who's this team's MVP and you can certainly make a case for Flaherty because, you know, the most recent example, the Pirates game, when we scored two runs and we won the game two nothing, uh, that doesn't feel like a game we win yeah. in uh, earlier in the season. If we're only scoring two runs, you, you know what I mean? Like I, I, I uh, I was looking at, you know, the stats, you know, since he started on this run. And I should have looked at, you know, how, mu- how much run support he was getting. Cause, because I feel like it hasn't been a ton. I feel no. like there's been a lot of starts <laughs> where he's, you know, 
keeping the team, the other team at, uh, you know, two runs or one run. And, you know, we're not exactly putting up, you know, huge crooked numbers. So yeah, I, I think he's as much as anyone is responsible for where the Cardinals are right now. And I also want to talk about Adam Wainwright. I mentioned earlier because he is in many ways, the other real surprise of this season on the pitching staff. And we could put Dakota Hudson in that category, but I don't think anyone really had legitimate expectations of Adam Wainwright not only being a starter, but being capable enough to put together some pretty classic Adam Wainwright starts and hold on to that starting rotation spot deep into August, September. Who knows what will happen once uh, a possible postseason series comes to St. Louis. But man, I got to tell you, Adam Wainwright being good again, even if it's not, you know, ace of the staff good again, is one of the most incredible parts of this season for me because it's just so fun to watch him do what he does and to see him do it well, as opposed to watching him struggle like he has for the last couple of seasons. Is it just me or is Adam Wainwright and his 27 starts so far one of the best positive surprises of this season? It absolutely is. I think, didn't we before the season like talk about like what's a reasonable amount of innings we can expect combined to get from Wainwright and Waka? Like, like could they combine to get to 300 innings? I I think was maybe what we asked and Wainwright's already at 150. Um, I'm not sure where Waka is, but the point here is like, like Wainwright has a chance to throw 170 innings this season. Um, And you know, he's, he's not like 2014 Adam Wainwright, but he's been solid. He's been, absolutely what we could have hoped for in terms of based on what we saw the last couple seasons. Um, you know, he's, he's certainly been a step up and better than the last two years. I, I have like two questions. One is like, what, what's in his contract that triggers all the bonuses, if you remember? And two, am I crazy for saying like, I almost wouldn't mind him back next year as a fifth starter? I was thinking about next year with Adam Wainwright, after his last start and thinking, man, I don't, I don't know how you get more than you've already gotten out of him. But at the same time, it would almost be a shame for him to not pitch next year based on what he's done this season and the success that he's had and the way that he's kind of been able to be that veteran guy that sort of changes what he does in order to be effective. And it's been really fun to watch. So I I don't think it's crazy. I don't know what that realistically looks like and where he fits into the mix with the Cardinals, but I don't hate the idea. As for the contract, I didn't remember it off the top of my head, but I did look it up earlier. And it's funny to me because we saw this contract come out with all of these bonuses built in, right? For five games started, for 10 games started, 15, 20, 25, 30 games started, which basically maxes out the contract. There were other incentives for relief appearances or for Um, saves if he ended up being the closer. The max of the contract, as far as my math skills can inform me, uh, is that it's it's 10 million as the max on the contract. It's 2 million guaranteed. And then the rest of that is incentives and bonuses built in for the number of starts made, the top being 30 games started. He's 
started 27 games so far this year. He's three games away from maxing out that contract that we were all like, yeah, that's cool and nice and all, but that's never going to happen at the beginning of the season, which again, just reiterates that like what he's done this year is kind of mind blowing. Yeah. And and if all goes according to plan, he still has, I think four starts on the table. Uh, So, you know, I'm certainly happy. Um, I, I talked about how I'd like to have him back next year. The, the only pause I have about that is, you know, how many times when he was struggling, did you hear people say like, I didn't want to see Adam Wainwright go out like this, you know? Um, yeah. So then he kind of turns it around and we're like, bring him back so we can, you know, <laughs> bring him back until he's not good again, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. But no, I'm, I'm super happy for him. Uh, I, again, I'd, no one's assuming anything, but if they do, if they are lucky enough to win the division and, you know, go to the NLDS, I presume that would be against Atlanta. Although that for a while, that got a little closer in record, um, you know, mm-hmm. between the Braves and Dodgers than anyone would have thought of a couple of weeks ago. You know, I, I, I think it makes, you know, I don't know how much we need to believe in those home road splits, but it sure does seem to make sense to have him start that third game, the opener and Bush. You know, again, if we are able to be lucky enough to even be in that position. Yeah, it it definitely makes that an interesting conversation that when, like I said, when we saw that contract at the in, in October or whenever it was, I don't think any of us expected to be talking about should Adam Wainwright start a postseason game when we saw that contract wait, wait, and, wait. and the decision was made. I, I want to correct myself here. Wait, wait a second. Do we trust him more than than Hudson right now? I was gonna ask Michael, who's like, the like because I, I'm right. thinking of like uh, I, I'm thinking I, I know Michaelis has not been what he was last season, but I'm still feeling like it's Flaherty Michaelis games one and two. And then maybe yeah, I mean it's it's a silly thing to argue about. It doesn't really matter all that much. Um, although you know there's always a chance that NLDS won't even go for a game, so I guess it, you could argue it does matter who who starts that third game. But Michaelis has been, I mean, Michaelis Hudson has been uh, very solid too. Uh, one of my friends sent me an email today um, noting that Hudson's uh, 3.4 ERA versus his 4.94 FIP is the second largest positive gap for a Cardinals pitcher with a minimum of 15 starts. <laughs> and Andy Bennis was actually, uh, is actually number one on that list. Uh, I guess Andy Bennis had a season where he came back after some injuries and, and put up some uh, interesting numbers. But I don't know, like I, I'm starting to kind of be a believer in Dakota Hudson. It's hard not to. I mean, he's been so solid again, particularly in the second half, but not just the second half. I feel like the, the, the build has even been slower for Dakota Hudson than it was for Jack Flaherty because he started out so bad to the point we were like, I don't know if he can stay in the rotation another time through to then, okay, it's not the worst thing ever to then, okay, we'll just hold on. And then maybe Alex Reyes will be back to then all of a sudden we're talking about Dakota Hudson is the second best starter on the team, which is a, a huge build from where he started the season. And you're right. I think one thing that he has going for him in the rotation is that he is such a different kind of pitcher. You mentioned the ground ball rate, and that's something that has been consistently successful for him this year. Miles Michaelis doesn't have that consistency this season, and he's been fighting it. It's kind of like 
when he's on, great. But when he's off, you have no idea how badly it might end. And as far as Adam Wainwright fits into that mix, you're right. If he's at home, it's been so much better. But then he just put together a terrific start on the road against the Pirates. So all of a sudden, you're looking at this is a weird conversation to be having. (laughs) Which one of these starters is better than the other in order to potentially make that third start? I do think that there's going to be some level of credibility given to the experience of Miles Michaelis over Dakota Hudson. But I think if you just look at the numbers, um, Hudson is making a convincing case for himself to really be one of those guys that you can depend on every five days. And in this case, if you're looking at a postseason rotation, it's hard not to give him that nod, I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if this argument is going to make any sense or even if it matters in the grand scheme, but I, I still, I think I like Hudson kind of third or fourth, mostly pitching at Bush stadium, just because, you know, Bush always kind of um, trends towards pitchers or at least is neutral in terms of a park. Um, and with a, a pitcher like Hudson, who, you know, doesn't strike out a ton of guys, I just feel more comfortable with him at Bush stadium than say, uh, and I'm going to totally speak out of turn because I have no idea how uh, SunTrust, whatever it's called, <laughs> yeah. Park plays. Uh, and also, Michaelis doesn't exactly strike out a ton of guys either. But I don't know. I I, I just feel more comfortable with Hudson um, at home than I do on the road. Yeah. It's interesting to me that we're having this conversation because for so long, the rotation was such a, a point of contention and – with Jack Flaherty doing what he's doing and Dakota Hudson turning it around, Adam Wainwright just kind of consistently reinventing himself has been really, really beneficial for this team. It's almost like Miles Michaelis and Michael Walker are the the two that get left out of that conversation at this point, but either one of them can go out and shut down an opponent on any, any given night as well. That's a that's put them in a good position. And you look at what the offense has been doing and their ability to score runs mixed with this starting rotation that's kind of bookended by the young guy in Jack Flaherty doing amazing things and the old guy in Adam Wainwright who's still figuring out how to get it done. To me, it's almost the perfect mix of what we could have hoped for out of the starting pitching that we were never really quite sure we were going to see with this group. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that carries them through the end of the season. I don't know what that looks like against the Cubs. Anyone but Jack Flaherty pitching at Wrigley Field kind of terrifies me, but Wrigley Field in general is always a place where bad things can happen very quickly for the opponents. So maybe that's just a personal bias. I don't know. Uh, But we'll see what happens through the end of the season. Jack Flaherty flirting with history every time out is, is definitely a reason to keep watching, if nothing else. Absolutely. And I I think the most important thing here is uh, I mentioned last week that two weeks ago when I talked to uh, Ben Godar, the Cardinals had a three-game lead. Um, And last week when we talked, the Cardinals had a three-game lead. And this week when we're talking, the Cardinals have a four-game lead. So two weeks have passed, and not only have the Cubs not made up ground, but they've lost a little bit of ground. So at the end of the day, we can all be just thankful about that, I think. Because um, now the hard part begins. But at least, you know, the Cardinals have done their job and beat some not-so-great teams, but beat them like good teams do, which is beat them convincingly and, uh, you know, consistently. Yeah, which has not always been their MO in the last few years. And 
I think part of the hesitation to buy in to what's going on right now is that we've seen them get close before. We've seen them take the lead and then lose it and never get it back. And so it's the ability to hold on to that and to even widen the gap over a two-week period, you're right, is pretty telling about what they've been able to do and and what the uh, what the challengers have been doing as they try to work their way back towards that division title as well. But it will be an exciting couple of weeks, a stressful couple of weeks to be sure. And I'm sure there'll be plenty more to talk about as far as the pitching is concerned as we watch them try to try to finish this thing off. But for now, Alex, it's time for the chirp of the week. Yeah, so I, I thought it seemed um, right to talk about Chris Duncan. Um, mm. As we found out during Friday's game uh, that Chris Duncan uh, passed away due to brain cancer, uh, which he had been battling since 2012. I'd forgotten it, it had been that long. And Tara, correct my timeline uh, if it needs to be corrected, but I believe it kind of got serious this past January. I think yeah. is when it, it really returned and it looked like he was nearing the end of the road, sadly. Um, but, you know, Chris Duncan came up with the Cardinals um, in 2005. He hit a, a home run in the, uh, the the last season at Old Bush and, uh, you know, kind of had his, uh, you know, coming out party. He just had a few plate appearances that year. But 2006 was really kind of his fun season. He hit 22 home runs in, uh, in only 314 plate appearances. And I wanted to look at, and of course, this was his uh, full rookie season. And I wanted to look at baseball reference, um, baseball references play index to kind of see where that amount of home runs ranks relative to the amount of plate appearances. So I sorted with uh, 300 350 or fewer plate appearances, and then just went by home runs. And he is 18th all time since they first started playing baseball way back a long, long time ago. It probably wouldn't surprise you that Mark McGuire is actually first on this list. <laughs> this seems like a list that is built for Mark McGuire. In 2000 with the Cardinals, uh, he hit 32 uh, home runs and fewer than 350 plate appearances. Um, so there you go, Mark. Uh I feel like this category should be named for him almost. Um, <laughs> if you sort it by rookies, Duncan is third to uh, Matt Olson, who hit 24 in 2016, and Jordana Alvarez um, this season. But Alvarez is going to eclipse 350 plate appearances soon. So uh, for rookies, uh, you know, Duncan is second on this list to Olson. And, you know, he had a pretty good season again in 2007 as well. But, you know, as, as we've all read by now, injuries caught up with him. And he, he didn't have that great of seasons after that and was soon out of baseball not long thereafter. But as so many people have talked about this, this uh, the last couple of days, it's impossible to think about 2006 um, and not think about Chris Duncan just for how kind of that much needed pop he provided late in the season. Uh it's easy to forget that, you know, if we don't win that game five, a lot of people are mad at Chris Duncan because he made, <laughs> made some bad plays in the field. And that was almost like part of his charm. I, I don't know. It was just I, I had the 2006 World Series DVD, uh, the one narrated by Billy Bob Thornton, and I watched it from time to time. And uh, I, I think 
you know, 2011 was such a special thing because of just the way it unfolded. But 2006 holds a very special place to me because it was really the first World Series. Um, you know, they won it in 1982 when I was three years old, but I, you know, don't really have any memory of that. So I feel like I have been waiting my whole life, just like a lot of other baseball fans, to see their team win the World Series. And they finally did. And Chris Duncan was obviously a, uh, a big part of that. So, you know, I don't have anything all that poignant to say. Uh, I There were so many good articles in the last couple of days about Chris Duncan. I really recommend reading Bernie Mickles' column, column on him uh, at ESPN 101. But I don't have much else to add other than to say peace and love to the Duncan family. Uh, obviously, I, I thought Danny Mack and Edmonds were just really good to listen to, and they they handled everything like very well and much better than I think most of us could even imagine doing in that situation. But yes, peace and love to the Duncan family. Chris Duncan, you know, what can you say? It's too soon, obviously, uh, but I'm always going to have happy thoughts about Chris Duncan. Yeah, it's, I was at work and not home listening to the game or watching the broadcast on Friday, but I found out you know, in the middle of the football game that I was working and and couldn't imagine trying to announce that at all, much less when it's someone that I almost feel like the, the St. Louis media ended up being closer to Chris Duncan than um, a lot of, uh, I guess, than, than a lot of the relationships that came directly from playing baseball because he really bought into this new phase of his career and, and seemed to be so embraced by that industry as well as the people who listened to him. So I couldn't imagine having to do what you do on a nightly basis to bring baseball games into the homes of of the fans, but also to then bring them that kind of news about someone that you are so close to on a personal level as well as a professional one. So when I did hear some of the comments and and some of the coverage from that night, I I agree. I mean, I don't know that there's any way to be prepared to handle that situation, but there was so much respect and and so much um, love for Chris Duncan and his family throughout all of that commentary that I think we could all feel that. And in a lot of ways kind of embraced the, the sadness with everyone that night, but you're right. As far as Dave Duncan or Chris Duncan, I bring up Dave Duncan because that was always such a part of his story, right? As a, Mm -hmm. you know, he's the, he's the coach's kid, but he really did create a story for himself. And I've loved seeing some of the stories that people have about him in the last week. And there are so many more, I'm sure the, the way that, postseason played out the way that that world series played out man i'm sure he's so glad <laughs> that it went the way that it did because it could have uh it could have been just such a hard thing to kind of get past knowing that there were some mistakes that he made um as well including one that that jim edmonds mentioned specifically uh you said he made some some bad plays one of them is that he called off Jim Edmonds in center field and then dropped the ball <laughs> and uh, Jim Edmonds told that story I, I believe the next day on the broadcast and was laughing about how he, he never let him live that down but they ended up winning so it didn't matter um, yeah. so many stories like that and it's that's one of the things about being a fan of a a team at, at any level right you you feel like you sort of have this personal knowledge of who these people are and 
it just is, uh, it, they have an impact. And I think that's what we've seen in the last few days is that Chris Duncan had a massive impact on the field and off. Yeah. Uh, last thing I'll say is that a lot of the like tweets that I saw coming in from uh, not just old teammates, but also like national baseball writers who had yeah. obviously been on his show, like Craig Calcaterra. Mm-hmm. I think I saw one from Molly Knight, um, several others. And the uh, reoccurring theme was they all said how nice and kind he was. Uh, yeah. And that's about as good of a legacy as anyone can leave. So, yeah. you know, that was good to read. Agreed. Always a part of those 2006 memories. And really since then, a part of a lot of sports memories for a lot of people in and around the St. Louis sports scene. So my love to the family and their friends as well. And we get to cherish those memories now as, as we sort of relive some of those experiences. But that will do it for this episode of the show. As always, you can follow us on Twitter and continue this conversation, whether you have other memories about Chris Duncan or if you have other thoughts about Adam Wainwright. Should he come back next year or Jack Flaherty or maybe who should start a potential game two or three of a postseason series? Let us know all about it at Tara Wellman, at AlexCard79. You can also send information or thoughts or comments on the show to Birds on the Black on Twitter and make sure you're following the podcast. We uh, saw some reviews last week on uh, Apple Podcasts, which was cool. There are some um, ratings and some reviews up there, which is always fun for us to read. So you can do that as well if you want, Um, but you can also just listen. That's fine too. Whatever you choose to do, we'll be back next week. Actually, I won't be here next week. Alex will have a special guest next week. So you'll have to tune in to see who joins him next week on Chirps. But until then, I'm Tara. He's Alex. We'll talk to you next time. 